Hello, everybody. My name is Mike, and this is the State of Mind show on Radio Regent. And we are back on November 13th, 2018. Today, we are going to talk about therapy. How does therapy work? Why might we seek therapy? And what are, uh, I guess, some of the questions we might want to know or think about as we go along that journey? Now, the American Psychological Association uh, says that there are about 400 different types of clinically proven therapies out there. So, needless to say, they are broken down into lots of maybe unique or pedantic ways um, of delivering the different types of therapy. So we are actually just going to focus on a few today, some of which is uh, personal bias on my end, um, therapies that I have done and continue to do, which I find very helpful, and also ones which I think I may start to provide when I become a registered therapist, which is about two years away, uh, maybe a little bit less. So let's start with um, MBSR. Now I choose MBSR, which stands for Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And I choose that because I find it quite helpful. Now, it's not necessarily a a one-on-one specific therapy, so to speak. Generally, they're done in groups. But it is an incredibly nice way to learn more about yourself and to heal. And I'm going to play a quick clip um, from the founder of MBSR. And this person's name is John Kabat-Zinn. And he sort of is largely responsible for mindfulness interventions to be accepted into the Western medical system. Now, that's quite a feat. And, you know, he is largely responsible for the widespread embrace of mindfulness as a helpful tool for well-being and for healing. And we um, uh, owe a lot of gratitude to him and to all the teachers that came before him over thousands of years. So I'm just going to let him tell you a little bit about what that means. I wish I had him in studio. This is a YouTube clip. Maybe one day we will. Let's see. What we have not learned in our Western societies is that there's some value and in fact even virtue to cultivating these deep aspects of our own being. And since 1979 when I set up the stress reduction clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, we've had over 16,000 medical patients come through our training program in what we call mindfulness-based stress reduction, referred by their physicians for the most part and with a wide range of different kinds of uh, health-related problems, mostly on the physical side rather than mental health problems because I have been a professor of medicine and function within the Department of Medicine as do my colleagues. Uh, I'm actually retired from the medical center now Uh, but still doing the exact same work and doing it with my colleagues at the Center for Mindfulness 
who are running the stress reduction clinic and a whole range of other uh, research endeavors and outreach endeavors uh, which are really truly magnificent and I am involved in training a wide range of health professionals and physicians in mindfulness-based stress reduction with my colleague and friend Dr. Saki Santorelli and we do these through the Omega Institute. So there he was and as you said at the end there he uh, is training other physicians and I was lucky enough to find a physician, uh, Dr. Walk. Uh, she teaches in Toronto. So, And because she's a medical doctor, her services are covered by OHIP. So I suggest following up with me somehow if you want to get in touch with her. She's a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And her services are covered by OHIP. So she trained with John Kabat-Zinn, I think, about 20 years ago. And she's been teaching in Toronto since and I've learned an incredible amount of things from her and her teachings, and I continue to learn from her, and I continue to take her her classes whenever I can. And they've been incredibly helpful. And one thing in particular is the ability to separate our thoughts from our emotions and from our experiences. And uh, that's been a really powerful tool for me. So I'm going to play another clip from John Kabat-Zinn because I think it's helpful to understand what mindfulness is because a lot of times I think uh, with the proliferation of mindfulness interventions or just mindfulness in general, the core essence of the teachings and et cetera seems to be getting watered down a little bit. And I I have personal... um, questions about that and about, you know, the efficacy or the ethics of people wandering around saying they're mindfulness teachers and etc. So let's just play this. I think it'd be helpful and informative and I'll pick it up from there. Actually, a way of connecting with your life. Uh, and it's something that, uh, doesn't involve a lot of energy. It involves a kind of a cultivating attention in a particular way. So what the way I define it is it's paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And then I like to add sometimes as if your life depended on it, because it does. Uh, attention is the faculty that allows us to navigate our lives in one way or another and to actually know what's happening or know that we don't know what's happening and find ways to um, be in uh, a wiser relationship to things that are going on in our lives than than being at the mercy, say, of our own emotional reactions and crazy thoughts and uh, fears and and so forth. So uh, it's paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, as if your life depended on it. So paying attention to what, you might ask? Well, it doesn't actually matter. It's, paying, it's the attending itself that's important, more important than what it is that you're paying attention to. But that said, um, if you start to pay attention to how much attention we pay to anything, you begin to notice that the mind is all over the place. It never sits still. It's got this idea and that opinion and this reaction and 
we spend a huge amount of time um, planning and worrying about the future and a huge amount of time reminiscing about the past and who did what to whom or why it worked out this way or why it didn't work out this way. And the present moment, which is the only time that we're ever alive in, the only time we could learn anything, express any kind of love or emotion, the only time we could be in our own body, the only time we can see or hear or smell or taste or touch or uh, communicate, is now. And yet the present moment gets completely squeezed out by all of our preoccupation with the future and the past. When we start to pay attention to our own mind and our own body, it's like reclaiming your life. Mindfulness is not a technique, uh, although there are many, many different ways to cultivate mindfulness. It's actually a way of being, being embodied, being in some sense in equilibrium with the comings and goings of the outer world, and even the comings and goings and the ups and downs of having a body, which of course has its wonders and is also at some time seriously problematic when we're dealing with health problems of one kind or another or uh, things that can happen to the body. And as long as we have this capacity for awareness, why not develop it? Much of the time, if you think about our educational system and how we grow up, we are trained more and more and more to get into thinking. And thinking is wonderful stuff, very powerful. Uh, some of the you know, greatest uh, achievements of humanity come out of thought uh, and out of imagination and out of creativity. But the other piece of it that's equally as powerful uh, as the capacity for thought is the capacity for awareness. But we get no training in awareness and attention, huge amount of training in thought. So a lot of the time when we get into bed at the end of a long day, we can't deal with our thoughts and we can't sleep. They just kind of perseverate over and over and over again. The same thoughts, we want to shut them out. The more you try to shut them out, the more they come in, and pretty soon you don't get to sleep, or you wind up with a, a, you know, basically chronic anxiety or some kind of condition or other. Uh, depressive rumination can spiral you into uh, depression, uh, a little bit of sadness, and then that triggers this kind of perseverating constantly, what's wrong with me, why don't people like me, why didn't she look at me, whatever it is. These are all thoughts, I'm no good, I'm too old, I, you know, my life is, it's all downhill from here. All of those things, they're only thoughts, but most of the time we think of them as the truth. So what mindfulness does in a way is it embraces the actuality of the mind, the heart, the body, and our relationality with the outer world and gives us new degrees of freedom to navigate the ups and the downs and the ins and outs of our relationships with life, with other people, with uh, our own aspirations and our own fears, and also, and most fundamentally, with our own body. Now, most of us don't want to go anywhere near our own body except under very specialized circumstances at particular times. It seems like, wow, it's wonderful to have these bodily experiences. But a lot of the time, we're just pretty much up here. Thinking, 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 thinking. And really be believing so many of these thoughts as the truth that we wind up in a very narrow band of what's actually possible for us in terms of our human experience. So there he is, quite articulate. And I wanted to take what he was saying at the end there and um, elaborate, on, elaborate on it. He was sort of talking about thinking. And one of the, the gifts, as he said, with, our, with a mindfulness practice is we start to be able to detach who we are 
from our thoughts. And when we are able to do that, our thoughts tend to have less control over us. And we are able to maybe choose which thoughts we may want to engage with, which thoughts might not be serving us um, in a moment. And in my experience, developing a relationship to myself, which isn't held hostage by my thoughts. So one example might be I um, say something rude or inappropriate to one of my kids. And I may start thinking, wow, I'm not a good parent. I can't believe I said that. Why would I say that? I'm never going to learn to not say things like that. And, oh, my kid doesn't like me. My kid's not going to like me. They're going to turn out all screwed up, blah, blah, blah. And I go on into, you know, quite a tailspin of unhealthy thinking. Now, when I'm well and taking care of myself, I still experience those thoughts sometimes, but they don't turn into emotional reactions and they don't get in the way of me you know, perhaps living my life the way I want to live it. And that's another big thing about mental health and and et cetera and why you may want to seek out therapy is because when our thoughts or our emotions um, or our behaviors are getting in the way of us living our lives the way we want to live them and they're causing us a lot of stress and turmoil, then that might be a good idea to seek help or to possibly go and seek a therapist. And there seems to be a lot of stigma around asking for help or going to therapy. But in in all honesty, from my experience and a lot of the things I see out there, the more we talk and the more we address our problems, whether big or small, the better our lives become and the better the lives of those around us become. So in a sense, we have a responsibility to ourselves, and through that responsibility, we're able to embody our responsibility to our family, to our friends, and to the greater world around us. And if we're to create a better world, which I think a lot of us would imply would be a good idea or think is a good idea, um, we can have tremendous impact. And we can never know how far our little acts of kindness or the little changes in our behavior go. Now, one part of mindfulness-based stress reduction that sort of blends into another type of therapy is uh, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, in a lot of mindfulness um, programs, similar to the one that we've been talking about, There are activities or homework, if you will, uh, where we practice noticing our thoughts, writing them down, perhaps offering contrary ways of thinking about those things. And that's where CBT comes in. So CBT stands for, again, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and it seems to be currently in, in, at least in Canadian medicine and in American the sort of foremost accepted um, 
intervention or therapy, mode of therapy, because the research, maybe it's because most of the research has gone into proving its efficacy or, you know, it's not exactly the most complicated type of therapy, but because there's evidence backing it up, our healthcare systems are starting to support it. And I'll uh, talk a little bit about it in a bit, Um, but I was just recently did a a video or an interview with Cam H and they're rolling out a um, training program for therapists so that they can be certified to teach CBT or to offer it as a service because I think, fingers crossed, the Ontario government is going to start paying for more of this for people, which would be wonderful. And I think CBT is a great start um, and it helps a ton of people, but I, I think As many things, it can be improved. And, um, you know, we also shouldn't put all our eggs in one basket. So here's an example uh, of how CBT works. So you may have a moment in your life. So it starts with a situation. So something happens. Maybe you have a conversation with uh, a friend or a loved one or something happens at work. And it manifests in different ways. Um, So maybe your boss at work tells you something that makes you upset. And maybe you perceive their actions as not fair or not kind. And generally what happens is that triggers an emotional response. And so maybe you feel um, shame or you feel guilt or anxious, perhaps, or frustrated, or angry. And what we start to learn to do is to notice the thought, then notice the emotion or the feeling that's attached to the thought. And in a CBT worksheet, you would label the intensity of those emotions. So my boss told me my work wasn't good. I'm going to get fired. I'm never going to get to have a job ever again. I'm the worst employee ever, and my boss is a jerk. So then you attach that to the emotions and the intensity of those emotions. You rate them out of 100 or 1 to 10, and then you start to write down or you list what starts to happen to your physical body. So some people might start to sweat I often sweat when I get anxious. So that would be a physical sensation or a physical manifestation of the cycle of my thoughts and feelings. Another thing that is common is people might get dizzy or they might get really tired or they might um, shake, right? That would be another one. And so as we start to write these things out, we just start to become more aware of ourselves. So it is a nice practice in self-awareness. And the next part of the CBT worksheet, so to speak, is is to write out those thoughts that I was describing before. So I'm not a good employee. I'm never going to be good at my job. I'm going to lose my job. I'm never going to get hired again. You know, all these kind of things. So we start to write those things out on paper and we get to notice, wow, these thoughts are not helpful for me. And 
those emotions that they're associated to are also not helpful. And I can see how it starts to spiral, you know, in an unhelpful way and cause me more and more suffering. Now, the next part of the thought record sheet is to potentially provide contrary or an alternative perspective on that thought process. So rather than saying, I'm a bad employee, I'm never going to get a job again, my boss is a jerk, we can offer a different explanation for that. And in this scenario, one might be, ooh, I did a bad job on this project, and I probably did a bad job because I was tired or I was stressed or who knows what life circumstances were happening that caused you to do a bad job. Maybe you didn't ask for help. Maybe you took on something you weren't ready for. So you can start to provide different explanations for what had happened. And you might say, oh, my boss actually isn't a jerk. My boss was actually trying to give me honest feedback. And because I was quite critical of myself, I didn't take it very well. And maybe I misinterpreted what, what my boss was trying to communicate. And you might also say something along the lines of, I'm actually generally a good employee and I do good, do and I do do good work. And this time I didn't, but that's okay because over a long period of time I've done a really good job. And what, you know, maybe the last thing on this particular um, worksheet might be, what can I do if I handled this poorly? What could I do next time that I might be able to do a better job of? Or, you know, what was the pattern this time? And did I use any of my newfound skills to slow down the negative impact of this cycle? So one, you know, personally, when I would get into these patterns prior to developing a disciplined mindfulness practice, I would go out for a walk. So that would be my technique to diffuse the intensity of the thinking and the feeling patterns, which were not nice. I would go out for a walk and I would often try to call a friend of mine or a mentor. And through the walking and just the opportunity to put my words out of my head, say them out loud, that in and of itself reduced a lot of my tension and a lot of my self-criticism, which was incredibly healing. So that is, um, you know, part of the CBT process. That's one way that it works. And I often hear um, doctors say, you know, I suggest CBT to lots of people, but they're not willing to do the homework. So if we go back to how does therapy work, why might we choose therapy, the underlying premise is you need to want to get better. You actually must embody that principle. Now, for me, I spent easily 10 years of torturing myself and saying I wanted to get better, but not actually doing anything about it. So if you're going to go for some CBT therapy, you it would be most helpful if you committed to actually doing the homework. Because doing the homework 
is really what it's all about. You can go and you can talk and et cetera, but you know, for the substantial changes to happen, you got to put in the work. Now that doesn't mean that if you don't do your homework one week, then you're bad and you know, you can get into all that unhelpful thinking, but it is part of the plan and it actually works. So I suggest that you do that. I would say one place that CBT could maybe take another step would be to incorporate some of the mindfulness practices of self-compassion and awareness, a deeper awareness of these thoughts and these experiences and the cycle between your thinking and your emotions and your physical body and your behavior. Uh, providing sort of a deeper understanding of that is actually quite helpful. And that's something that we, um, when I'm outside of this radio booth, uh, it's just a big part of the stuff that we are teaching to students in school and also in our work uh, workplace training practices or services because I think it's not all that complicated. Um, but we just don't ever learn these things. And particularly in school, we are trying to develop some lesson plans for we're going to try to start in grade 7 and 8 and all the way up to the end of high school. But I don't think this stuff's very difficult for people to grasp. And it seems that as a society, we're at the point where we might actually be able to start implementing these things and ideally lead to a big reduction in in the mental health crisis, if you will. Now, unfortunately, I didn't have these numbers, but at 1 p.m. today, the TDSB is releasing a whole bunch of data from their recent census, uh, student census, and that should be quite interesting. There's supposed to be a lot of information in there about the lack of sleep that kids are getting and all the anxieties and et cetera that come along with being a young person today. So it's unfortunate next week maybe we'll draw attention to that and talk about it a bit. But CBT um, as a baseline entry to understanding yourself is, is wonderful, and hopefully we can start bringing it to high school kids. Now, I'm going to play a song. I have to have a little break here. Uh, so we talked about mindfulness, mindfulness-based stress reduction, the benefits of that, detaching from your thoughts, bringing a deeper sense of awareness into your daily life. And then we went into the connection to CBT and understanding the connection between our thoughts, behaviors, physical body sensations, and emotions, and how we might start to unwind those when they get yucky and unhelpful. And then uh, I'm going to play a song, a Bob Marley song, and then we'll come back and I'll answer some questions that I that were used for me in the um, interview I did for the CBT training program at CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Okay. Well, it says here that that was Bob Marley, but that didn't sound like Bob Marley to me. Um, anyhow, this is still a lovely song. So back to the what is therapy, how does therapy work discussion here on State of Mind Radio on Radio Regent Park. So I'm going to go through these four questions here that I was answering uh, for the CAMH interview. So the question number one was, did you have any doubts about the therapist or the therapy at the initial assessment? Now, my journey uh, is a little bit maybe different than most. Who knows? So I 
was high on marijuana 24 hours a day for about 17 years nonstop. And I did lots of other unhealthy substances, but that was the primary one. So when I got sober, I didn't have access to a therapist right away. I didn't even understand what the hell was wrong with me. And I started to learn that over time. But eventually, I got on a wait list for therapy. And so eventually, I got in to see one. It took about 18 months. Now, hopefully, this if CBT becomes funded by the gov- government more, that would be wonderful so people don't have to wait 18 months. I'll, after this little part, I will explain what I did in those 18 months. But anyhow, so did I have any doubts about the therapist or the therapy at the initial assessment? Now, all I can say is that I desperately wanted to stop feeling horrible and being miserable. I was willing to do whatever I possibly could do to make myself heal and get better. So I did not have any doubts, but many people do. And especially people who, you know, aren't likely as in as much distress as I was when I entered. But, you know, it's it's an important thing to consider. Do you have doubts about the therapist or the therapy? Now, I would make the suggestion that it's better to try than to not go because of these things. We uh, we don't have to continue seeing the therapist if we don't like them. I did start seeing an addiction counselor right in the beginning of my journey, and that person wasn't helpful for me, so I stopped seeing them. And, but that didn't make me stop pursuing care or treatment. So it's okay if you don't like your initial therapist or whatnot. And I'll just... Uh, one quick story about when I went to see mine uh, the, for the first time. He's this big, big man, you know, six foot four and, you know, wide and thick. And I was a little bit intimidated. And at my therapy office, you walk down this long hall, I guess, depending on where the office, your doctor's office is. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this guy? He's so serious. This is not good. We sat down. I started talking and I must have said something humorous. And he just burst sort of into laughter and he had this big glow and this big smile. And <clears throat> it really uh, made me feel quite nice and welcome and, and in the right place. So I did have some doubts in that sense and my initial judgments and et cetera probably were negative. But through a little interaction, um, it was quite nice. And so at the end of the last part of this question is, can you describe what those doubts were? And what hopes did you have for the therapy? So my hopes, again, as I said, were just to feel better, just to understand my insanity and my madness and and learn how to be a little bit more sane and together and start to change my life through self-awareness and understanding. And I can tell you it certainly has been working. You know, I've been in therapy for about six years. I don't go as much as I used to, but it's a beautiful thing. It, it truly is. And that's with the same therapist. So question number two, was the process of accessing services challenging? Have you had challenging experiences in the past past accessing health-related services? Did that impact your initial relationship with the therapist? I kind of touched on this in the first uh, question, but it, it was difficult accessing services. I waited, as I said, about 18 months. And not only that, I had to continually bug the clinic to see where I was on the wait list, 
to follow up. I think at one point they said, oh, uh, thanks, Michael, for letting us know. We'll uh, get back to you. So who knows? I think uh, one thing that's hard to grasp or maybe accept is even in these clinics, everybody's doing the best they can with what they have. I sincerely believe that for most people. So having, uh, you know, assuming people have good intentions, I think is a helpful thing. Not all do, but in healthcare, I think that is a reasonable assumption. And maybe the, you know, receptionist who took my name down the first time doesn't work there anymore. I mean, there's so many possible reasons why our information isn't kept or it's misplaced or we're not followed up with. I think I hear so often that, you know, the doctor's office never gets back to me or why don't they care? They're not answering my calls. I mean, there's just so many reasons. So it's upon you, the client, in most situations to advocate for yourself. We, as patients, we really need to be better advocates for ourselves. And when we can do that from a a place of understanding and compassion, the outcomes are much better. Now, it's totally reasonable to get angry and to get frustrated, all that. But generally, um, when we act out of that anger or frustration, the outcomes don't tend to be as good. Uh, Obviously, that depends on the severity of the harms being done or what's happening. But as a general rule, you know, compassion, understanding, patience, those things are incredible virtues and very helpful in our lives in general. Now, the, you know, the challenge getting access to this clinic did not interfere with my relationship, um, which was helpful. So if you're having trouble getting services or you can't find it, that is frustrating, no doubt. But you should continue searching elsewhere and I, you will find it. That is for sure. Whether it's in the form of a therapist or a mentor or a coach or whatever, there are people out there willing and wanting to help and um, you will find them if you search hard enough. Okay, question three. Were you worried that the therapist might judge or misunderstand you? not understand your cultural religious practices? Was there information you omitted as a result? I think for me, as I, because I had that 18 months before I got the care, I spent a crap load of time in 12-step meetings and learning about myself that way. Um, So I built up enough honesty or the ability to not hate myself anymore so that I wasn't too worried about being judged. Now, I'm not a religious person and I'm Caucasian. I come from Canada. So in terms of cultural religious practices, I wasn't worried about being judged, but I certainly understand for other people how that might be a sense of fear or a sense that this person's not going to understand my culture, my religion, and my background, and they might not treat me as fairly. Um, But, and that's totally valid. I would say, though, that most, again, as I said before, most therapists, most doctors do have your best intentions uh, at heart, and they want to be helpful. That's why they're doctors and therapists. And when, it's a fine line, but when, if you find yourself 
thinking they're not treating you well or judging you or whatnot, um, I suggest saying something to them about it if you can, are comfortable and acknowledging that they're human too and they make mistakes. And obviously this doesn't um, you know, forgive or condone bad behavior or prejudicial behavior. Absolutely not. We're not here to condone that. But we are best served if we can be understanding and maybe interpret certain information in certain ways. Um, and that comes with the healing. And that comes with understanding our thought patterns and how we, how that leads to, to certain behaviors or words that come out of our mouth. So the last question, what did the therapist do that was most helpful in terms of building a therapeutic relationship with you early on? This actually was an interesting conversation in my interview or in the video I made with Kim H. And what I guess, so the, the conversation we had was what's more important, the personal relationship you have with the therapist or the form of therapy that you're doing? So if it is CBT, is it more important for the therapist to be, you know, getting you through the worksheets and the homework or is it more important for the therapist to just be there as a human being and be caring and be thoughtful and be present? And I took the you know, approach of it's 100% most important that the therapist is there for you as a human being and as a guide or you know, as a therapist. It's not so much about the homework. And the reason I say that is because most of us or many of us when we go into therapy, we're broken or we've got problems and we want to get help. And I think what's most needed in the beginning is just somebody you feel comfortable with and safe with and somebody that you believe has your best intentions at heart. So if the therapist is more concerned about rushing you into the homework because they need to get you out the door so they can get another client in, then that's probably not helpful. And if you find your therapist doing that, and you're not okay with it, then it might be an indication of switching. And um, that's something to be aware of. You know, there's something so beautiful about somebody validating your experience and listening to you with an open heart and an open mind. And that, I think, is certainly missing from our day-to-day -day lives in the world and absolutely missing from... I would assume some therapeutic relationships because in my, so I'm doing a master's right now in counseling psychology so I can become a therapist. And I was quite taken back by some of the assignments and the readings that we were doing, which discussing ethics and ethical behavior and what is the responsibility of the therapist to provide the best care that they can. And I guess I was maybe naively uh, under the impression that ethics and behaving appropriately or with an ethical orientation um, was the norm. And I think it probably is, but there isn't as much adherence to those principles as I would have thought. And it's one thing to write them on paper and to have guidelines and association rules and etc it's another for the therapist to actually embody those in their relationships now fortunately <clears throat> my psychotherapist was 
somebody who embodied, you know, a calm, aware presence. And it was clear he cared about helping me and was there for me. So that was nice. I've been pretty, I often say I, I have a combination of a horseshoe so far up my butt versus uh, with the compliment of serious determination to solve my problems and to get better so that I can also then help others. So those are four questions that you might ponder if you are searching for a therapist and, you know, therapy works. It really does. And I kind of think about of it now as glorified coaching or, you know, I have these wonderful people in my life that are there to help me when I ask for it. And nobody on this earth ever gets to any place of greatness or even just tranquility and ease without help of other people. And that's one thing that's so difficult, I think, in the beginning for people when they're ask, accessing therapy or services to to be okay with or to grasp or to accept. You know, we all need help. None of us are perfect. So it's okay to go and get that help. You deserve it. And the fact that you're in the situation that you're in is not your fault either. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's not our fault. Okay, we're here and we can go and get help and we do sincerely deserve it. Okay, so that's the CBT um, and the general questions around what to think about for accessing the care. And I think I need to draw attention to um, 12-step programs, so Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, things, programs that are 12-step based. Now, those are all peer-run, so they're run by individuals who have been there before. And the 12-step program is a spiritual-based program. And for many people who have substance abuse issues, that is is sort of the first place they go. And that's where they find a lot of love and compassion from the other members there. And it, it is quite a beautiful environment for those that it works for. And many of us who can't access services who do have substance use problems find our way there and that really helps us through um, some pretty dark times when we can't get professional care. I have 12-step group uh, experience, continue to. I have a psychotherapist. I have my mindfulness doctor. I have a psychiatrist as well who actually I'm switching psychiatrists, which is pretty exciting. I saw the new guy for the first time today and he was very helpful. And so I'm looking forward to that relationship and also have a a marriage counselor um, who has also been really helpful. So I think if we can take the orientation to want to get better, to do everything we can to get better and to pursue that with a sincerity and a willingness to go through difficult situations, then um, I think the outcomes are going to be great. And I think... Uh, a, f- a great friend of mine, Katie, often says um, she's a nurse at a children's hospital and they often say to their clients, there's no problem too big or too small for you to ask for help. And that's such a lovely message because I think sometimes we think it's not important enough or other people have worse problems than I do and I don't deserve help and 
our minds, our thoughts have such an incredible capacity to deceive us into all kinds of silliness that if we let them, if we let those thoughts get in the way of our, of helping ourselves, then just, ah, it's not nice. And so you deserve the help. No big, no problem is too big or too small. And, and whether you can solve that through friends or mentors or whatever, um, what's most important is that you are pursuing that. And I encourage you to do so, if that might be something you're thinking of. Now, another topic around all of this is this idea that sort of there's all these different kinds of therapy. And one thing that I find a little bit silly is just the explosion of all the different kinds of therapy. So MBSR, the mindfulness-based stress reduction, has earned, has turned into, you know, MBSR for trauma, MBSR for cancer. Um, mind, there's now there's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which is a blend of CBT and MBSR. Anyway, there's just this sort of plori- pl- proliferation of therapies and et cetera, and they're not all that different. Um, you know, the most important thing is that you are accessing help and you are getting help. That is by far what's most important. I think I mentioned that earlier. So there you go. Um, there, you know, there's lots of places to access help. Um, sometimes we have to wait longer than we should. And the center for addiction and mental health is one place. Um, but your family doctor is another place to start. Um, but really just working at things consistently over time is what brings the benefit. And I encourage you to go out there and, and do whatever you can. Um, wow, it's already been 50 minutes. Um, so I guess that's really all I, I can say about it as of right now. Um, there is another form of therapy which I wanted to talk about, but I'm not informed enough about it, I don't think. It's called DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And it's also, I think, similar to mindfulness-based stress reduction, and it's sort of similar to CBT, but um, it's taught in a little bit of a different way, and it seems to be really helpful for teenagers, which is great. And there's also evidence that mindfulness-based stress reduction is good for teenagers, which is great. Um, and so anyway, I'm going to play a little clip from a lady named Marsha Linehan. I think it is Linehan. She is the founder of DBT. And so hopefully we'll learn a little bit from what she has to say. I started working with highly suicidal people. As it turned out, the people met criteria for borderline personality disorder, but A, I had never heard of borderline personality disorder, and B, I didn't know what it was. Even if you told me the name, I wouldn't have known. So that was the beginning of the whole thing. I had no idea what I was doing, except that I was studying suicide. What happened was standard behavior therapy of the 1970s and early 1980 blew up. And the main reason it did is because what it requires for it to work is for a person to come in and you be able to say, okay, here's the problem and here's what we'll do to change it. And for the person to say, okay, I'll try that. But the people I was dealing with immediately said, you're saying I'm the problem. And so they were so sensitive 
to any invalidation or statement that they were the problem, that the treatment blew up. And they would either get angry at me, hide behind a chair, storm out, quit therapy, yell and scream, cry, or say they're going to kill themselves. So it didn't take me too long to figure out this was not going to work out. So I thought, okay, we're going to switch to a more acceptance-based treatment. So I'm going to validate and be very accepting. So I tried that. That blew up also because then the patient said, you mean you're not going to help me? You're just going to listen to me? Most of the patients I treat have already been through a whole lot of therapy where you talk, get listened to, and understood. The problem is talking, being listened to, and being understood doesn't necessarily make anything change. So then they got really upset with me because I wasn't helping them change. So that's when I realized that I had to pull together a major emphasis on change with a technology of acceptance. So I had a technology of change, and I needed a technology of acceptance. The technology of acceptance primarily was validation. So it's behavior therapy with a huge amount of validation. So problem-solving, validation are the core components of the treatment. So there she is. Um, interesting how she was talking about how her clients would sort of say, you're telling me I'm the problem, and they would not listen from there. That's a really great observation because a lot of us in the beginning were so caught up in our thinking or, you know, we think our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors and all this stuff sort of is who we are. Um, and as you go through these therapies and through these practices, you start to be able to detach, you know, today, oh, today I was thinking in this certain way and I felt this way and my behavior was like this, but that's not who I am all the time. And that doesn't define who I am and what I am. And, that's a really nice outcome. But as she said, in the beginning, it's difficult. So, you know, I think we'll have to do a part two of this because there's some other things I wanted to get into ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, which I think is similar to DBT. Um, we'll do a part two for sure, maybe in a month or so, because I have some guests for the next few weeks. And we'll we'll pull apart some more of this because it's an important thing. And um Therapy is lovely and beautiful. So next week on the show, uh, we have David Professor David Zernet from the University of Toronto, and he is really involved with student well-being, and I think he's a student advisor, and he's got some really interesting insights on what's happening at the university, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his dog training uh, which is super cool. He's he's a dog trainer, and he takes a lot of um, maybe therapeutic or you know psychological tools and practices, and uses them in his dog training. And so I think he'll be a great guest to have. We'll talk uh, with him, and then the following week we have Jesse Bigelow, who is a lived experience legend um, in the peer support world. He's a, he, in the peer support world. He is a peer support specialist with the Star Learning Center, which is part of St. Michael's Hospital. And so those are the next two guests. And I don't have time to tell you the others coming up. But anyhow, I'm going to leave with a song. I hope this is the original person singing it. I think it is. It's Jimmy Cliff 
I can see clearly now. Thank you for listening. Uh, this will be uploaded into the podcast form sometime in the next week. So thank you very much. Thank you, Radio Regent. This is a wonderful opportunity for me. And everybody, I hope you have a good day.